0: Prime Minister Netanyahu's coalition has passed the first reform law to limit the powers of Israel's Supreme Court.
1: Prestige Supreme Court judges or justices in Israel, uh, it was at least very uh, very high in the eyes of the public. I think that image is being attacked um, these days, and there is being... Um, really a campaign of, uh, of I think propaganda exactly. campaign against the, the, this image of Supreme Court judges trying to really attack them in a personal level and, uh, and, and I think that, that that kind of has been working in, in recent years First of all you have to understand that this is only
2: an administrative law and there are some people who confuse it with constitu- constitutional law and, and I hear it sometimes oh. on the American, on the American media that the Supreme is striking down laws because they are not reasonable. This is just not
1: true. Which protects judicial independence, for instance. Even that can be changed with a, with a simple majority of the parliament of the opposite. And that right, right. was no. what was on the line in, in March. Yeah. when The right to vote. To...
2: Everything can be changed in the 61 majority. The thing that we have, uh, everyone has one vote. Everything. Can be changed all the basic rights, all the 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 powers of judiciary, powers of the government, powers of the Knesset. Everything can be changed, and everything is theoretically just is on the
0: goodwill of sixty-one people. Did you know that since the year two thousand, Israel's Knesset has passed sixty amendments to Israel's basic laws, which are Israel's quasi constitution, and these amendments are not just about small details. At times, whole system of Israel's government were changed after deliberations that took a mere week. Hey there, news peelers. Today is August 4th, 2023, and this is Adele, your host at the History Behind News podcast. Aren't you tired of the repetitive news on TV and social media? They just go over the same dramatized developments all day long. Do you ever wonder what happened before our news? I mean, how do we get here? They say if you don't know your history, you're bound to repeat it. So while others cover the news, I uncover its history. I call this peeling the history behind news, which we accomplish in weekly conversations with distinguished scholars who delve deep into history, To give us their fascinating perspectives from our past i'm committed to making in-depth history that are researched and written by scholars enjoyable and accessible to everyone so grab a cup of coffee or your favorite drink or both and let's get into it on monday july 24th 64 israeli lawmakers which make up a slim majority in israel's 120 member knesset amended one of Israel's basic laws and in so doing, they took away the Israeli Supreme Court's ability to strike down government decisions that it finds unreasonable in the extreme. By the way, these 64 Israeli legislators comprise Mr. Netanyahu's entire coalition and no members of the opposition join in this vote. As my guests in this episode, Dr. Guy Laurie and Dr. Amir Fuchs explain, the news media, <laughs> including our news media here in the US, simply exaggerate the application of the unreasonable standard at issue here. They explain that Israel's Supreme Court's unreasonable standard is not used for constitutional or policy matters. Rather, it only applies to a narrow category of administrative cases. For example, the hiring and firing of top government officials. The Wall Street Journal gives an example of how Israel's Supreme Court has in practice used this standard. Recently, the high court nullified Mr. Netanyahu's appointment of a key ally for the position of interior, health, and finance minister. The problem was that this appointee was convicted of corruption and tax evasion. Now that Israel's Supreme Court is no longer a check in these administrative matters, Mr. Netanyahu can hire whom he wishes, presumably including those convicted of crimes, and he can also fire whom he wishes, including Israel's attorney general, Who has steadfastly maintained her independence and who is in charge of investigating and prosecuting corruption charges against Mr. Netanyahu. The potential for this happening is more than theoretical. According to the New York Times, members of Mr. Netanyahu's coalition have already introduced legislation to limit the powers of Israel's Attorney General. Some have even suggested that she should be fired altogether. In the New York Times opinion piece, an Israeli journalist and historian described this step and the overhaul of the Israel judiciary as, quote, crippling the Supreme Court's ability to prevent abuses of government power, unquote. Israel has been rocked by mass protests since January, when Mr. Netanyahu first announced his judicial reform. Thousands of military reservists cried out that they would quit. I read an amazing article in the Wall Street Journal about these reservists who are quitting. The journal told the story of an Israeli Air Force colonel, a 25-year veteran, who had fought in Lebanon and lost friends. He wept openly as he wrote to his commander about the hardest decision of his life, that he would stop reporting for volunteer reserve duty. Another Air Force instructor, who was previously a fighter pilot and commander, wrote his suspension of service letter because he said he was forced to weigh, quote, the safety of the country versus the very existence of the country that we fought and were ready to give our lives for, unquote. And it's not just the military. Businesses and the medical community have threatened to quit too. When I spoke to Dr. Gidon Rahad of the Israel Democracy Institute back in April, he told me that the conflict over Mr. Netanyahu's judicial overhaul has to do With Israel's national identity. Let me me correct myself here. The word conflict is not what Dr. Gahad said. He used the word crisis. In fact, he said this moment is the most central crisis in Israel's history, and that some people liken it to war. Dr. Gahad explained that because of Israel's poor system of checks and balances, the Supreme Court's independence and power are essential to democracy in Israel. And that's what this episode is all about, Israel's Supreme Court. How does Israel's Supreme Court compare to our Supreme Court? Does Israel's Supreme Court have the same relationship with Israel's legislative and executive branches of its government as the U.S. Supreme Court has with the Congress and the White House? Mr. Netanyahu seems to think so, but Dr. Lorry and Dr. Fuchs disagree. Here's another one. How are Israel's supreme court's justices, who are called judges, selected? How many cases does Israel's high court hear? This one will surprise you, or for American lawyers in our audience, it will shock you. Is it an appellate court, or can an Israeli citizen bring a case directly to Israel's supreme court? What legal system does it function under? Common law, similar to the U.S., civil law, similar to France, or Jewish legal traditions, or perhaps a combination of the three? Dr. Lori and Dr. Fuchs will explain all these matters and more, such as the unreasonable standard that I mentioned earlier, and also Israel's Declaration of Independence and how it compares to our Declaration of Independence. Dr. Guy Lori is a research fellow in the Democratic Values and Institutions Program of the Israel Democracy Institute. He's an attorney and holds a PhD in history from Georgetown University. Dr. Amir Foks is a senior researcher at the Center for Democratic Values and in Institutions at the Israel Democracy Institute. He holds a doctorate from the Faculty of Law at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem and is a lecturer in the Politics and Communication Department at the School of Government and Social Sciences at Hadassah Academic College. To learn more about Dr. Lurie and Dr. Fuchs and their several books and numerous other publications, you can visit their academic homepages, the links for which are provided in the detailed caption, where I've also provided a link to my April conversation with Dr. Rahab. So stay with me as Dr. Lurie and Dr. Fuchs and I peel the history behind this news. Dr. Lori and Dr. Fuchs, it's a pleasure to have you on our program. Thank you for taking the time for this conversation with me. Let's start our conversation with some basics about Israel's Supreme Court. Uh, I'll begin with this one that I've been curious about. Does Israel's Supreme Court function under common law, such as in the United States or civil law, such as in France, or perhaps Jewish legal traditions?
1: Well, uh, the Israeli Supreme Court has, uh, at its basis, uh, a common law system. It it sprung from uh, the British uh, mandate uh, over uh, Palestine, which uh, later became uh, Israel. And at at its base uh, are common law traditions. That said, there are a lot of influences uh, and the functionings of the Supreme Court uh, again, from the start, uh, you can you can see uh, even uh, when it was established uh, in September of uh, 1948, the first oaths of uh, of office for the uh, justices had to be uh, written and uh, from nothing, and they and they came back to biblical sources and tried to connect uh, the the uh, so to speak the uh, traditions of the of the Bible to the new Supreme Court and try to make some continuity there.
0: interesting um,
1: and, and also some some uh, a lot of uh, law traditions, uh, particularly in the in the way of the administration, because a lot of the uh, first um, justices of the Supreme Court in the first decade and and particularly uh, the, in the ministry of Justice, the uh, administration the, uh, the early administration of Israel, a lot of uh, people came from uh, from continental Europe and particularly from uh, Germany. Oh, and interesting. So a lot of influences in the way how they perceived that a Supreme Court should should be administered uh, and should be related to the Ministry of Justice came from a perspective of how a Ministry of Justice should uh, tinker with the administration of, of uh, the courts, also the Supreme Court.
0: Dr. Fuchs, um, your colleague, Dr. Laurie, used the word influences, um, and he talked about the oath. Do Israel's Supreme Court decisions cite the Bible or Hebrew traditions, the Torah, or anything like that?
2: Sometimes, because some of the justices like to to uh, to cite uh, Jewish law, and, and you have to to know that we do have some kind of a law that says uh, first you go to the Israeli law, then you go to um, uh, precedents, and mm-hmm. then you go to analogies, and if you don't have any source of law, you can also get some influence from from the Jewish law. So it goes to, to the tradition of the specific uh, justices, I think some of the, which we call them judges, some of the judges Uh, have a lot more background and they like it and it's part of their tradition. So they uh, cite the Jewish law, but some of them don't.
0: I read somewhere, and correct me if I'm wrong, that when it comes to family matters, family law, specifically marriage and divorce, religious institutions have their own courts. So let's say if I'm uh, a Muslim, uh, Israeli, or a Jewish Israeli, I go to completely separate courts. Is does that is that true? It's
2: true. Some of the status law in Israel, which relates to marriage and divorce and a few other issues of status, are only and uh, totally in the hands of the religious courts. But we do have family uh, courts which are secular, and it's very complicated. Oh. Some of the issues that are... Not about just uh, uh, the, the, uh, the divorce itself. For example, the issues of the kids and the issues of uh, the divorce uh, separation of of the um, property. Money. Yeah, the property. So that can be also uh, be dealt with in the uh, secular uh, family courts.
0: That does sound complicated. So do you go to two separate courts? Let's say you're a rich couple, and unfortunately, you're getting a divorce. Uh, one of the members, one of the spouses is Orthodox Jewish. I'm I'm making this up uh, as I go along here. And he wants to go or she wants to go to an Orthodox Jewish court. Uh, but the other spouse wants to go to a civil court uh, or, or, you know, a government Uh, based court is that a conflict does that do you run to these issues
2: it's 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 very complicated but the divorce itself can only be done in the jewish or the religious court
0: i see the other
2: things which are related to the divorce can be done either in the religious court and either in the uh, secular court and actually there is one bill now that is dealing with this issue specifically. They want to oh, give more I'm power glad I asked court. They want to give more power to the religious court and this is one of the laws that the seculars and specifically women in Israel are worried about because they feel, and I think uh, rightly so, that the religious court is uh, giving less uh, power and, and uh, rights for, for the women uh, when they, when they go there and they want to, to most of them want to go and deal with all the civil issues about a divorce in the secular court.
0: I'm afraid of asking this question because if I ask it, that could be a whole podcast unto itself, gentlemen. If more matters go before religious courts, don't you run into sort of issue of separation of church and state. You, you can see I'm asking that from an American perspective, right?
2: It's not sort of. It is an oh, issue wow. of separation of religious and state. We are fighting with this issue from since the beginning of, of Israel. And it is a big deal. It's not just about that. It's about many other things, about how the Shabbat is, 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 Do you have public transportation in Shabbat? What about kosherness? What about...
0: Um, um, I'm sorry, Dr. Fuchs. I didn't get your comment about public transportation. What does this have to do with public transportation? Religious we course
2: no public transportation during Saturday. And, oh, and most, oh, All of the um, uh, secular people, or at least a big majority of them, do want public transportation. If you don't have a, your own car, you can get anywhere on Saturday. So this but, is the
0: but, issue the liberation
2: are... of religion state.
0: There are highly technologically advanced and industrial parts of Israel that I know about. For example, let's say Haifa. I know a lot of medical device and biotech companies are in Haifa. It shuts down on Saturday, so there's no public transportation yes, in Haifa?
2: Yes, even oh. though Haifa is really an exception, some lines are working in Haifa, but not in Tel Aviv, not in Jerusalem, not in Be'er Sheva, not anywhere. Uh, That's have-
0: fascinating. Wow. Wow. Does I, I told you I I I was afraid of asking this question. You can see how we can talk about this for hours. Does Israel's Supreme Court have investigative powers, or does uh, uh yes. or, or does it have to wait for parties to bring a case to it? Do you see the difference? Well, it
1: has to wait for parties to bring cases to it. Uh, it's, I see. Uh, it's the court of a, a final venue in terms of. Uh, He appeals uh, from parties, from lower courts, and it's actually a first, uh, first appeal, even um, first instance appeal. And it's also uh, a court that receives direct petitions from parties uh, sitting as a high court of justice, meaning that, uh, but again, it has to uh, wait for the parties to submit their petitions in order for uh, for the court to hear the case
0: similar to the united states there are countries whose course are a little bit function a little bit different they're more hands on such as in france um right.
1: but it's an adversarial system and and again it's it's uh, as in the us it's an adversarial yeah. system and and you have to, you know, the parties are are responsible for uh, bringing the evidence uh, particularly in, in petitions to the high court of justice it's the petitioner who has to bring uh, An affidavit uh, saying uh, uh, that what he says uh, argues is true and the states uh, state usually are answers again with an affidavit and it's most of the process based on on what the parties bring to the court
0: similar to the us we are an adversarial system as well um i appreciate and i understand that israel's supreme court's decisions are binding i get that but what if the government doesn't enforce those decisions? We've actually had that history in the U.S., particularly before the Civil War. States would not, from time to time, <laughs> enforce the Supreme Court's decision. Well, what happens then?
1: Well, there have been cases uh, in which uh, the government, uh, let's say, dragged its feet and failed to, uh, to enforce the decision, particularly in, in cases involving the in the West Bank. Uh, but it weren't. They weren't flagrant cases of, of uh, the government not uh, complying with decisions. They usually drag their feet and said, "Well, we're, we're they we're waiting. We're uh, we're trying. and and they they try to uh, not say that they're not complying with court decisions, even though at times it's it it was the same as as, as flagrant incompliance.
0: If, I, even I, though they were doing add- it blatantly effectively it was it, it was the same go ahead please Dr. Fuchs
2: I, I can add that they never bluntly said we don't respect the court maybe we can't talk about one specific case about the chairman of oh. Knesset, a few years ago and after a few days he did resign from his from his seat so in a way he did comply because uh, his successor did comply with the court. So it wasn't really uh, a, a refusal to to abide by the court. So the issue that we have today, when the prime minister is suggesting suggesting that he won't listen to the court on the constitutional matters that we deal now, this will be a precedent. This will be the first time that the government, if it will happen, I really hope it won't, but it might be the first time that the government would just say, well, we don't listen to the, to the decision of the court.
0: I see. We're talking about decisions of the court, which brings me to something uh, that I read and I want to make sure I have it correctly. Annually, how many decisions does Israel's Supreme Court hand down?
1: There are about 9,000 decisions that the court <laughs> hands
0: down
1: each year. Not too much. No, not
0: too much. I'm laughing because that number is just mind-boggling. How, uh, uh,
1: well, some decisions this are made by single judges. So we have about 6,000 of uh, 6,000 of these decisions, more or less, are handed down by a single judge. And the rest of the 3,000 cases are handed down by panels of judges. Usually the court usually sits in panels of three and really important cases such as uh, petitions uh, to um, invalidate laws or basic laws, the court may uh, sit in, in wider panels. It has 15 uh, justices on the on the bench, but usually the panels are panels of three and so it can somehow manage the uh, such a caseload.
0: This is, this is so different. Than I
1: may I our... add an, another explanation?
0: Please do.
2: You have to understand something very unique about our Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. It's the first appeal on the first instance, instance on a very wide, uh, uh, many cases. They start on the district court which we have about six, or maybe I'm, I'm wrong. Guys. We have six
0: district And your courts district courts and... are above magistrate courts.
2: Yes. Okay. But important cases, grave offenses, and big lawsuits start at the district court, which means that the Supreme Court is the first appeal, and it is a mandatory appeal. They they don't choose their purposes. They have to listen to to a very long and in very big and complicated cases every day, in cases of murder, cases of uh, big lawsuits, so about every field of the law. And this is why this court is very unique. It's not a constitutional court that uh, uh, chooses like 100 cases which are very, very important uh, and yeah, constitutional yeah. issues. They deal with day to day people, they deal with Many, many, uh, for example, uh, appeals about what is uh, uh, what is the penalty, just it. I, I, I worked on, on the attorney, uh, on the prosecutor, uh, the state prosecutor. Hours and hours, days and days, the Supreme Court is just dealing with really, really relatively not important and not big issues about should this man go to jail for two years or for three years? Or just about these issues. So this this explains why this court, and maybe we will talk about it later, um, why this court is very very professional, and why all the talks about this court should be more political, and this court should reflect uh, the, the majority, and all that. In a way, you have to understand that this is a very different court than the American court, and than most of the Supreme Courts, just because because it deals a lot with just regular cases as a first instance of appeal it does have also a few thousand how much guy 2000 uh, uh, cases of what called bagats a petition for high court of justice and this is kind of a constitutional court but it does have thousands of court of cases which are just first appeal
0: i have so many questions now um, <laughs> <laughs> um Okay, let me just let me just say it this way. I used to practice law. I was a patent lawyer, uh, and of course, went to law school and learned about all sorts of uh, legal subjects. In the u s, uh, legal scholars and legal historians live and breathe the Supreme Court's decisions, which are about a hundred or so. They used to be less. now they're a little bit more. That jurisprudence is important, you know, in a specific subject. Let's say civil rights, patent law, marriage, whatever. They could just list the name of important cases. How does that compare? How does that level of scholarship compare to Israel, when you have nine thousand annual cases? Do they pick like? Do they go to that three thousand that's more important? As Dr. Laurie was saying earlier, that volume is just so huge.
1: Well, it is a, a huge uh, amount of cases, but again, uh, let's say the High Court of Justice cases are about 1,300 cases a year, sometimes more. Uh, but but again, yes, it's it's, it's it's I guess it is more difficult. Uh, but uh, I think in terms of the really important public uh, cases, the amount of cases is probably not that different in terms of the really important matters that come to the court, because really the court not be can choose it doesn't the court doesn't choose which cases to uh to hear and which not it, it has to hear uh all of the cases it can uh, in cases that it thinks it thinks that does don't have merit or um and uh, they don't uh, the petitioner doesn't have standing or it's uh, it, it may uh, uh it may brush off the, the case but it has to give a decision in each of uh, these cases and so the really important cases i guess. Each uh, field are not that uh, different,
0: probably. Are not that many. Um, you know, we're talking about cases and decisions, which brings me to this final question of this segment. Can the Knesset ever take away the Israel Supreme Court's jurisdiction on a case? Let's say you and I sue each other, we go before the U, uh, Israel Supreme Court and they kind of said, nah, nah, you don't have jurisdiction to listen to this. I, and, and by the way, I asked this question because the U.S. Congress has actually done this. They have taken away the U.S. Supreme Court's jurisdiction on a pending matter. They did it in 1868 and based on many legal scholars, they still have the power, they just don't exercise it. You could see the political backlash if they do that. So let's go back to Israel. Is this a possibility?
1: I think in terms of types of cases, um, we already have, uh, uh, in terms of the Knesset, uh, Israel's parliament, uh, bringing uh, some of the jurisdiction of the Supreme Court to bring some of the cases down to the district courts. There is a process in which, especially administrative uh, law cases, and certain segments of it are uh, being brought down to the district courts. And other types of cases also, the over the days have said no. There is no jurisdiction, for instance, in appeals against the the president of Israel, which is a, a symbolic figure. Although yeah. uh, the court uh, petitioners and the court have found a way around that. Uh, that uh, let's say uh, negating uh, w- uh, the jurisdiction of the so, court. So,
0: so, th- so that I'm clear. In this case, the Knesset actually did try to take away jurisdiction on a case pending before. Is uh, before the Supreme Court about
2: take away take day. away the jurisdiction of it as a first instance. You should understand. Maybe I we didn't clear clarify it enough earlier. It's another unique issue that all the petition to the High Court of Justice. You go straight to the Supreme Court as the first and last instance. Yeah. So, what the change that the guy is talking about, you know, some of it is taking away this jurisdiction as a first instance and give it to the district court. The appeal will still be in the hands of the high court.
0: Okay. So, it's different. So and it's the not appeal will still go anywhere.
2: Up. It's just screening some of the cases. And in the way the court wants this, because they are packed with thousands of cases, and they want that some of the cases will start in lower courts in order to, to have them uh, less packed.
0: I see. We'll be back after a short break to talk about how Israel's judges are appointed and also to answer this question What is this reasonable standard that is so much on the news right now? We'll be right back. Did you know that the U.S. Congress can take away the jurisdiction of the U.S. Supreme Court on a pending case and for any reason whatsoever, including the reason that Congress doesn't like the potential outcome? of a case pending before the High Court. I know, this doesn't make sense. It sounds crazy. It seems to undermine our constitutional principle of the separation of powers and also of checks and balances. But as Dr. Michael Klarman of Harvard Law School explained to me in season three, episode 26, the US Congress has frequently debated taking away the US Supreme Court's appellate jurisdiction over particular issues that politicians in Congress just don't like the outcome such as the New Deal statutes in the 1930s, abortion, school prayer, and much more. In the detailed caption of this episode, I've provided a link to my conversation with Dr. Klarman about the history of SCOTUS, the Supreme Court of the United States. Now, let's get back to our conversation with Dr. Laurie and Dr. Fuchs about Israel's Supreme Court. Dr. Laurie Recently, just back in April, you published the following study, quote, Appointment of Judges to High Courts in Democratic Countries, a Comparative Study. What is this research about?
1: Well, it's really a response to uh, the government's uh, attempt to uh, re- reform or uh, change the way, manner in which judges are appointed in Israel. And one of the ideas that the government had was that the coalition should have decisive uh, voice in the matter. should have the deciding vote on whether judges to all courts, both the Supreme Court and the, the rest of the lower courts, uh, the coalition will have the deciding voice. It will uh, decide and uh, will control basically the appointment to all courts. And one of the arguments... By coalition,
0: that, you mean the majority in the Knesset, right?
1: Right, the government yeah. and the majority, yeah. uh, which is uh, based on the, uh, the uh, majority in the Knesset.
0: Okay. And
1: one of their arguments was that um, that is the way in which uh, judges are appointed around the world. And, and Israel is unique in its uh, in its uh, appointment process, or it, really in its selection process, which involves uh, professionals and doesn't give the decisive vote to the uh, government. And so what we wanted to do uh, in the study that I made with uh, Professor Michael Cohen uh, was to really uh, fact check whether this is in fact the case. And what we found is that it is not the case. in, in fact, mo- looking at particularly at Supreme Courts or constitutional courts and, uh, and democracies, we found that usually uh, almost exclusively uh, the coalition cannot uh, appoint or select by itself the judges to the Supreme Court. And uh, there are various measures that try to check the power of the executive in appointing uh, Supreme Court judges, whether it's an institutional separation, as you have in uh, the U.S. Supreme Court, where the the president uh, nominates and the Senate needs to approve the nomination, or if there's a the supermajority that uh, selects in the uh, in the parliament, mm-hmm. or in other, there are various uh, measures that try to check the power of the executive or the majority in the parliament in uh, the appointment process. And and in fact, if the coalition in Israel would have been successful, it would have made uh, the Israeli uh, selection process uh, very unique in in that sense in democracies.
0: But let me see if i get this right in the u.s the president appoints a supreme court justice then it has to go through a process of confirmation in the senate uh, if the senate isn't is of the same party as the u.s president then that makes the job easier but what you have in israel is that the governing coalition of perhaps several different parties in the knesset and there's not another it's not a bicameral system you don't have another legislative body it's not like senate and and house of representatives here in the u.s so the coalition ruling coalition wants to be in a position that it selects a supreme court justice since israel's president comes from that same coalition there's Essentially, no check on this selection, right? I mean,
1: yes. Uh, the the prime minister uh, is is really the head. I'm sorry, that's
0: the... what I meant to say. Prime minister, yes, like Mister Netanyahu. Yes, yes,
1: there's no check, and and really, if you look at it even from a more wider uh, point of view, uh, there's it's not only the Supreme Court. It's once the government decides who we'll have the the power to control the uh, selection, will do so in all courts of the land. Uh, it's not a federal system. There are no different states or different executives or different uh, court systems. It's just the one single
0: uh, central uh, government statewide
1: court system and and the government wants to to have control over the appointments to all the judges in all the courts of the land uh, without any check on its power.
0: Before the current moment and the controversies and conflicts that are going on in Israel because of this attempt by Mr. Netanyahu for judicial to overhaul the judiciary was the selection. And in this case, it's professional selection going back of Supreme Court judges. Was it a politically hot button issue like it is here in the U.S.? Every time we have a new Supreme Court politics, everyone gets riled up and rightfully so. I mean, you can see what happened to abortion right after Mr. Trump's appointments. So has it been a political issue in Israel?
1: Well, it's it's a pro it's a, a process in which it's become more and more uh, important issue, let's say, and in, in terms of the public view of it. Uh, but also from the first uh, years of Israel, there was a sense that there, particularly in terms of diversity, there, there there was interest in what will happen in Supreme Court uh, selections and in terms of uh, Sephardic uh, Jews going into the uh, Jews going into the Supreme Court of Israel. There was a lack of of that in terms of diversity from uh, from Jews. And, but, but and that even from the 1950s, you can see that type of public concern. But really, in the since the 1990s, I think with the Supreme Court coming into the public eye and becoming a lot more um, prominent in, in, uh, in terms of uh, the Israeli politics, the judicial selection has also become uh, a lot more uh, important in the eyes of the public and in the eyes of the political system
0: when you say 1990s the israel supreme court becomes more prominent are you referring to what is called the constitutional revolution of the early 1990s correct uh, dr yes, is also shaking his head in confirmation okay sure. um i've come across this thing that's really interesting as as, as an attorney it's, it's interesting to me In the law, we have many different standards of judicial review. Um, The public hardly knows about it, and most practicing attorneys don't often even know about it. They're just going about their day, you know, uh, more concerned with discovery matters than really the standards of judicial review. But all of a sudden, the reasonable standard of Israel's Supreme Court, a judicial review standard, is all over the news. <laughs> Gentlemen, what's going on with this?
2: <laughs> well, you should ask that, Mr. Levine and, and <laughs> the government. I agree that this shouldn't be. On and he's the, the Minister
0: news. of Justice? Yes. Yeah.
2: I agree with you totally. It shouldn't be the news. It shouldn't be such an issue that's. Uh, every person in the street is talking about, although uh, it, it's nice for us as as law experts that we became so popular <laughs> and everyone are interested in our work.
0: Yeah. So what is that standard, the reasonable standard?
2: Yeah. Well, first of all, you have to understand that this is only in administrative law. And there are some people who confuse it with constitu- constitutional law. And, and I hear it sometimes oh. on the. American on the American media, that the Supreme Court is striking down laws because they are not reasonable. This is just not true. The Supreme Court strikes down laws, and it happened only 23 times since the 1990s, since the the new uh, basic laws of 1992, only if they are unconstitutional. They are against a specific right or, or, or paragraph in a basic law, which define the, the the basic law the basic rights of of uh, it, it's like a bill of rights in Israel but this is constitutional law they will change that too uh they tried on February and March yeah to have uh, an override and they tried to to change the power of the court to have by by, by they
0: you mean uh Mr Netanyahu and his his coalition as a majority yeah, yeah
2: yeah they tried and for now they failed but they they didn't stay there they, they they won't do it again but for, for now they put it aside and what they did do now and succeeded is uh, abolishing the reasonable standard uh, towards uh, the government and the ministers and this is just administrative law not legislation when the government as as a full body is having getting uh, decides on something having decisions or the government the the, the ministers themselves then supreme court has uh power to to have administrative review and they do have other uh, grounds for example conflict of interest or or if uh for example the some grounds of uh, how do we say it? general justice something like that but the standard of reasonableness is it's like a default when you see a really uh, irrational decision you don't know why you don't know what was the motive there what was the the uh, the conflict for, of interest why did the, the government decide that irrational decision sometimes and it's kind of rare but it does happen the supreme court said this is unreasonable and and this decision must go for, for example what we fear and, and in a way, the, the ministers say it uh, uh, in, in recent time, the, the, the current government, they say they want to fire our attorney general. And to, to explain the role of our attorney general, this is a big issue, but just to to the chief legal advisor, and also she's the senior prosecutor. You see, She's the chief of the prosecution of Israel. And one... Small detail here is our prime minister is under indictment of bribery. <laughs> he is the chief prosecutor.
0: Small detail, tiny yeah. tiny little detail, and yeah. The
2: government, and they all talk about it, they want to fire her, okay? And they didn't do so because they know that if the government will fire the prosecutor, who is now prosecuting the prime minister, it is 100% that the Supreme Court will say this is unreasonable, and one of oh, the reasons here is I to see. take away the power of the Supreme Court to say about this, these kind of decisions of appointing someone or firing someone, these kind of decisions, that they will not have the power to say that this is unreasonable. And since last week, the, the, we don't have any more. Of the, uh, so standards. this
0: has an immediate impact on uh, Mr. Netanyahu. Um, let me play devil's advocate here let's say um the knesset passes a law about the dead sea about the jordan river just environmental law no, no political stuff just environmental law and then the supreme court israel's supreme court reviews it and says no this is unreasonable if that happened in the us to some extent that 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 would be an issue because that law would have to be vague or would have to be counter to prior laws or would have to have other issues for it to be struck down or be unconstitutional. I think you see where I'm going. Go ahead.
2: Yeah, but again, you cannot say about a law that the Knesset passed that did unreasonableness. It's not...
0: That's what you were saying, administrative?
2: Yeah. It's only on administrative decisions of the government or the ministers. So oh. legislation, just like the Supreme, just like the United States, they have to say that this is counter to a basic law, which is our quasi constitution. So you can, this is not related to constitutional review, only to administrative review of decisions of the executive, the government or the uh, uh, the ministers.
0: I see. That's interesting. We'll be back. You can short... ask me
2: kind of a similar question, which is, okay the government, which was elected, is deciding something, some policy in yeah. the government decision, not in the Knesset. This is a fair question. and Like an um,
0: executive order by the yeah, U.S. president. Yeah, very okay. much,
2: Some big policy, which it, it's not in a law. It's a decision of the government. Mm. And I have to agree in a way that, and we had some uh, very important uh, experts in Israel that had some uh, critic over how the Supreme Court used its powers in over the years. And so even now, there were a lot more mild suggestions that, for example, only if it's on policy, not on nominations and firing the attorney general or the chief of staff and all that, if it's just a, a decision of the government about uh, general policy, if they would limit just that, the the opposition, in a way, would have supported it. Maybe in some kind of a compromise, and even for example, in, in, after Levine posted, proposed his general overhaul, there was a, a compromise suggestion by the by the president at around February, and there there was also a solution to the issue of the reasonableness, and it was balanced. Of course, it was part of a big uh, compromise on all the other issues about the constitutional review and about entrenching our basic laws that can be changed so easily by a 61 majority. So we can argue about that, but it's not what they're doing. They totally abolished it at all, and regarding everything, not regarding just general policy, regarding even, as I said, things that are totally irrational and unreasonable.
0: That's interesting. So those opposing uh, Mr. Netanyahu's judicial overhaul and and especially the changing of this reasonable standard, they would have compromised on the court's ability to use the standard on policy matters coming from the executive. And, and, And we can draw a line between policy matters versus pure administrative stuff, such as, as you give an example, firing uh, the attorney general. That's really interesting. Um,
2: also, decisions that directly uh, use with specific issues on specific people, not general policy. When it's general policy, I, I don't say that everyone agrees to limit the reasonableness. Some say we, what we have, we should yeah. keep it. But if we had a big compromise of all these constitutional issues and administrative issues we could have agreed on that
0: but you do realize gentlemen that that's not how the reasonable standard uh, by mr netanyahu's uh, government is being shared on on the news it's 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 a we know yeah <laughs> that's the news we'll talk about background and history we'll be back after a short break to talk about israel's constitution Hey there, Newspeelers! We're working on a brand new website with many super duper features, including videos of our guests and compilations of our episodes into series, with related blogs that are updated weekly, like series on US politics, economy, health policies, environment, women's rights, and also series on many other countries, like Russia, Ukraine, China, and Brazil, and the British monarchy, and also a series on revolutions and protests like those in Iran, Israel, and France. So be sure to check it out at historybehindnews.com. See you guys there. Dr. Fuchs, uh, last week in an interview with Wolf Blitzer on CNN, Mr. Netanyahu made the following statement, quote, What you're talking about is a situation or potential situation where, in American terms, the United States Supreme Court would take a constitutional amendment and say that it's unconstitutional. That's the kind of a spiral that you're talking about, and I hope we don't get to that, unquote. Now, gentlemen, I heard Mr. Netanyahu's uh, um, statement and then later watched it, and I got to tell you, I got pretty riled up. I mean, that would be ridiculous for our U.S. Supreme Court to come and say part of our constitution is unconstitutional. I'm laughing because that's just laughable uh, but then as i was preparing to speak with you gentlemen i realized that the interaction between the us supreme court the us congress and the us constitution is much different than their counterparts in israel am i am i looking at this correctly yes <laughs> okay wonderful please please explain let's
2: just let's just call what he said Inaccurate.
0: Inaccurate, okay.
2: Yeah, it's inaccurate. He was right in one point. Our basic laws are our um, quasi-constitution. They're not a constitution, but they are substitute for a constitution. Since the early 50s, the Knesset decided uh, that because some uh, historical... Uh, Sug- reasons not to have a constitution on the spot when the country was established. Yeah. And then your,
0: your colleague, Dr. Rahad, explained that in a prior episode. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So
2: uh, what they decided that we will have the constitution on paragraphs that will go over the years, and then someone will just gather them all up and call them a full constitution. During the years, these be- be- became more and more important, and the courts read them as an existing paragraphs of the constitution. It's not a whole constitution, but it does have a higher normative standard status. And this is, from my point of view, and from, I think, the most of the of the legal scholars in Israel see it as was an, an obvious interpretation of these basic laws. If you read them, you cannot read them otherwise than giving basic rights to Israel and giving the court the power of judicial review So this is what we have. So he's right about that. This is a quasi-constitution. What he is not right is that you have to understand that to amend our basic laws, the only thing our legislator needs is to take a bill and to put in the title two words, basic law. That's it. They don't need any special majority. Then They have one house. They don't need to take it to two houses. Some of the laws can be amended in a simple majority, even not a sixty one majority, which is fifty one percent. I'm sorry. 75%. let me let
0: me stop you if I may please. yeah, you tell me that Israel's legislature, the Knesset with a majority can 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 change the constitution? Yes, they can. You don't and have a ratification and... process. This is uh, not... a referendum, national
2: thing. And and we had some uh, comparison research, not just to the United States, where it's really hard to,
0: yeah, to yeah. amend
2: the Constitution. Two-thirds in two houses and then 75% of the states.
0: Yes, yes.
2: Also, in all all the countries that have uh, a Constitution, which are almost all the countries, to change the Constitution, to amend it, you need either to a third majority, either you have to have election between two uh, readings, or you have to have a referendum. There are many uh, issues that make it very hard for the majority just to change all the rules of the game. In Israel, they can just do it in free readings in one day. And I saw it because they are doing it. And it's not a theory. In Israel, while in the United States, you didn't have an amendment since 1992 and you had all of it, uh, 26 amendments, which 10 of them were just uh, like
0: the bill of rights
2: the ratification yeah the bill a couple of, of
0: years after the constitution right. yeah you're right
2: so in israel let me tell you what happened since the year 2000 just okay. that like 60 amendments to our basic laws so <laughs> and this particular knesset which lives like seven months changed the basic laws five times okay just now they changed it five times and they didn't just change small details they change the whole system of the government. For example, just a few years ago, we had that alternate government with two prime ministers and all that. I was there in the Knesset when they did it in a week of deliberations. They heard uh,
0: a few... In one uh, week of deliberations?
2: Yes. They heard a few uh, of the experts and they that's it. They voted on it. And also now, this big thing of the reasonableness, is, we see it as a major shift of... Sh- Checks and balances in Israel. They did it with one month of deliberations in the Knesset. That's it, and and it was um, it, it ended almost exactly as it started. They, they didn't hear any of the of the they hear, but they didn't listen to any of the experts. Nothing was changed. If there was a small change, which was for the worse, and and they did it on the coalition majority, of course, sixty four. But they could do it also on sixty one, and actually even. So this is what Netanyahu is referring to as an amendment of the Constitution. It's not. And because of that...
0: This is nothing like the U.S. Like, not even close.
2: Of course. And that's why the court on the last decades, it never struck down a basic law. But they said, this is not a Constitution amendment. We can check if there is, for example, misuse of constituent power. This can happen when they just legislate something for themselves, or. No reason or something like that. This is not the case about the reasonableness. At least from my point of view, there are some uh, cases that that also suggest that maybe Guy can can say something about that. But the main thing is that they also said for that uh, a constitutional amendment can be against the core values of Israel as a Jewish and democratic state. So this
0: this is wild.
2: Wow! They have they have power to legislate. They have power. Who change the basic laws, but they don't have a power to establish a new, a new state on a sixty-one majority in free readings in one day. This is irrational. They can they can ratify a law which is basic law monarch. They can do it. So what should the Supreme Court say? Well, this is a basic law. I cannot do anything. The Supreme Court said no. If there will be a law that will go against the heart against the core values of Israel, I might someday invalidate it. They never did it until now do it this time. I don't know if you already heard, this will be the first time in history that it will the, the, the hearing will be on September, and they already decided that it will be a full panel of 15 judges, which never happened in Israel. So this is a, a, a first hint that they take it very, very seriously, or at least the, the Chief Justice, Hayud, she decided that it will be a full panel. And a twist from my point of view and some others, although there is a lot of uh, controversy than that i think that this is the first time that the supreme court will say this basic law is invalidate it goes against the heart of democracy in israel and i think that they will invalidate it but of course we cannot know
0: as a side note um, as i told you i i i, I spoke with your colleague david Ahad of the israel democracy institute several months ago and he talked about israel's and I'm using his words here, gentlemen, poor system of checks and balances. And I see that it's nothing like what we have in the US, not that our system is perfect. Dr. Laurie. And if uh, I may jump in. Yes, please. Well, if
1: I may jump in, I just after adding a few words, uh, I, I think one of the fragility or the poor system of checks and balances you can see even in the basic law that governs the judiciary in Israel, the basic law of the judiciary. Uh, uh which says that uh, the the which protects judicial independence for instance, even that can be changed with it with a simple majority of the parliament of the of it. and that oh, was no. what, what on the line in in March yeah. when the, the right uh, to vote right to... everything can be changed in the sixty
2: one majority the thing that we have uh, uh, everyone has one vote everything can be changed, all the basic rights, all the, the, the powers of judiciary, powers of the government, powers of the Knesset, everything can be changed, and everything is theoretically just is on the goodwill of 61 people.
0: When then, you talk about basic rights, Dr. Fuchs, um, um, I'm, it, that makes me think of uh, the, our Declaration of Independence, where we talk about uh, uh, you know truths to be self-evident, our uh, unalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Every school kid knows that. Everyone knows that. It's not law, but we sort of take it as our basic rights. I recently watched a presentation you gave back in March. It was titled Understanding Judicial Reform in Israel. And in it, you talked about Israel's Declaration of Independence back in 1948, if I'm correct, on that year. So gentlemen, what I wanted to know in the remaining minute of this segment is this is israel's declaration of independence sort of inspirational and aspirational for israelis do do, do do kids say it and is it something that is cited i don't think it's law is it it's not law okay yeah so, so I don't
2: think it's not enough inspirations for kids i i, I have to say but hmm. it is an inspiration to the court and it has been an inspiration to the court during its first years when they established uh, uh, just a common law bill of rights based on that Declaration of Independence. It wasn't like a constitution. They never strike down any laws, but they did interpret the laws in order to uh, give way to to the rights that were written and even the rights that were not written in the Declaration of Independence, because they read it and they say, well, we see that this is a democracy. Democracy is not written there. But the 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 values of democracy are written there. It says full equality for all its citizens, respecting freedom of religion and all that. It looks like a declaration that establishes a liberal democracy. Yeah. Also, nation state for the Jewish people, of course.
0: Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah.
2: The, the term Jewish and democratic uh, was was later, a lot later, but it was uh, clear from the Declaration of Independence that uh, uh, the people who wrote it, they wanted to to establish a state which is Jewish, but also liberal democracy. And this was an inspiration to the court, uh, and, and it's still an inspiration to the court, because in a way, what I told you earlier, that the court says that in a very extreme situation, they will say that a law is unconstitutional. In a way, they also take it from the Declaration of Independence, which is gives inspiration and and shows that this is a liberal democracy and also a nation-state of the Jewish people.
0: And in many ways, that's similar to our Declaration of Independence. Dr. Laura, did you have anything to add before we go to our final segment here?
1: Uh, One correction on the uh, the issue of the selection of judges that I wanted to make. I forgot to mention uh, when I, I mentioned the comparison and the selection systems that there are, of course, systems in which the government... Uh, particularly common law uh, systems where the government can appoint uh, ostensibly by itself, by its own um, uh, discretion, the Supreme Court justices, but it does so in many cases after professional screenings. And uh, and so or professional vetting of the candidates and the, and the government can only appoint from those candidates. So only if uh, some listeners from uh, common law systems are listening, that's uh that's why we said that, again, uh, the government in these cases are is also, in fact, uh, in practice, uh, is uh, checked by the professionals in this system.
0: Yeah, which is a good system. Uh, let's take a break here. Stay with me and Dr. Laurie and Fuchs as we get into the perspective. The History Behind News podcast is available on all your favorite podcast platforms. Of course, we love your reviews and ratings of our podcast, especially on Apple and Spotify. And remember, don't keep us to yourself. Tell a friend about the History Behind News podcast. Dr. Lori, Dr. Fuchs... Did Israel's Supreme Court evolve to its current status with its current prestige and power, which is at the heart of this controversy right now? Or is it the case that from the get-go, its current prestige and power was enshrined in the system that was built back in 1948? As you gentlemen both know, our own Supreme Court was not born as such. It sort of evolved into its power until 1803, the Marbury, the famous Marbury versus Madison case. The doctrine of judicial review wasn't even established. Heck, the Supreme Court didn't even have its own building till, till the 1930s. So, how does that compare to Israel's Supreme Court?
1: Well, I think uh, in its first years, the Supreme Court struggled to to find its place in Israeli society, which was very uh, non-legal uh, uh, was uh, looked even frowned upon uh, 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 lawyers and uh, saw...
0: Non-legal. Interesting. Okay.
1: Uh, and saw laborers as the most important segment of uh, society. Uh, but even in those days, the Supreme Court struggled to create its own uh, place, I think, in Israeli society and particularly built upon uh, its, its role as uh, really the the, the final uh, of rights and trying to create a common law bill of rights uh, which uh, Dr. Fuchs uh, mentioned uh, previously. and I think over the years uh, it became more and more prominent and became more and more prestigious and, and until in the 1990s it became really the most popular, maybe one of the most popular uh, institutions, uh, political institutions uh, in the land. We came almost. Uh, there was almost a consensus of its importance and popularity uh, in, in in those days.
0: Interesting, uh, and the 1990s that also coincides perhaps with the re- constitutional revolution of the early 1990s that we talked about. Um, I note that the title of Israel's Supreme Court judges is judge not justice or associate justice uh, as as is the case in the US supreme court is is the word judge a direct translation from hebrew or is that a misinterpretation
1: yes i mean the, 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 there is no differentiation in hebrew between a uh, supreme court justices or judges, and lower court uh, judges. Although... And actually
2: also not from a referee in soccer. So it's <laughs> the same, same thing. I love sure it.
0: Um, <laughs> it's the
1: same thing forever.
0: At least until recently, uh, Supreme Court justices here in the U.S. had a certain prestige, and, and they still do, but there's so much political uh, wrangling going on about uh, the power of the Supreme Court right now. Anyway, I remember meeting, and I think I communicated that to you, gentlemen, to, to set up this question. I remember meeting Justice uh, Sandra Day O'Connor in the U.S. Supreme Court's conference room in the inner part, in the back rooms. And I tell the gentleman, meeting her, or meeting any Supreme Court justice, it could have been another Supreme Court justice, was a big deal. So like the aura of her presence and the gravity of being in the inner sanctum of the U.S. Supreme Court. And uh, it was awesome it sort of demanded our respect and my colleagues and i we were just so happy we were running to go to the supreme court and once we got there we sort of conducted ourselves with a certain decorum if you will um how does this compare to the israel supreme court
1: well it's in the eyes of the beholder, but i think yeah. uh there was a, at least I also uh, worked for a while as a clerk for a, sec- a secretary for a public commission, which the head was uh, former chief justice of the Supreme Court of Israel, Meir Shamgal, and his figure was such a, a overpowering kind of almost a mythological figure. I think oh, wow. in, in many ways, yeah. I mean, and he, he was the court, and, and I think in in that manner, I think the prestige. Supreme Court judges or justices in Israel, uh, it was at least very, uh, very high in the eyes of the public. And I think that image is being attacked um, these days, and there is being um, really a campaign of, uh, of, I think, propaganda campaign against the, the, this image of Supreme Court judges, trying to really attack them in a personal level, and uh, and and I think that. that kind has been working in uh, recent
0: years so Supreme Court um judges of Israel have a very high status in society not just in the legal community but also among the people they're held at, with high respect
2: no, no, not according to all the citizens of Israel because well, we, well guy was talking about the, the 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 90s but in in recent years the um the respects the that has is going down it's it's still high among the, the I believe about half uh, the the people of Israel but the other half it's just the opposite this is the problem this is what uh, uh made way for the overhaul that we have because it and, and it's been a campaign for years for maybe 10 15 years of trying to 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 uh try to persuade all, all the israelis that the, the court is anti-zionist that the court is uh hyper liberal and the court is traitors you you can you can hear that in and not just from uh you know the you can hear it from from public speakers that they talk about this about the court and and i'm sad to say that a lot of people were convinced
0: you uh, i know this sounds like a small question but it's important Do um, I don't know, school kids go to Israel's Supreme Court for tours to see it? Is this a big thing in the education system? You're shaking a
2: big thing, but they they when they travel to their Jerusalem, they sometimes visit Knesset, and the Knesset is almost connected to the Supreme Court. It's very, very close. There is like a a war between these two uh, institutes now, nowadays, but they are connected with uh, very, uh, just a, a door uh, within a garden. And and yes, sometimes the kids go and they see a hearing in the Supreme Court and they go and they uh, see a hearing in the Knesset, yes.
0: That's wonderful. Um, if you wanted our audience to remember just one point about Israel's Supreme Court, after everything we talked about, what would it be? You first, Dr. Laurie.
1: I think uh, the professional character of the Supreme Court, both in its work, which is highly professional, and the character of the judges and and how they are selected. I think that is the, the thing I, I would want the listeners to, to remember, that a very highly uh, professional and really not political uh, character of the court
0: not political that's wonderful because we deal with that part the politics of the supreme court here in the u.s uh how about you dr fuchs what would, would you say like that to...
2: okay i would say that the supreme court is what might what made israel a liberal democracy they wow took care of it on on the first years that we didn't have any basic laws that had basic rights and after 1992 they interpreted these laws as really as a bill of rights and in a lot of ways Many rights that were not written anywhere, like freedom of speech, like equality, they were just made by decisions of the court. All the rights of LGBTQ in Israel, all of them are just made by the Supreme Court. Oh, Israel wow. It's a vibrant liberal democracy only because it has a strong and independent Supreme Court. That's it.
0: So when you say all LGBTQ rights were made by Israel's Supreme Court. Yeah, nothing that makes is it...
2: legislated. That. That,
0: that makes it so frightening if more cases go to religious courts as the current Knesset's majority wants it. Um, Dr. Laurie, Dr. Fuchs, thank you so much for educating me and our listeners. And to our listeners, if you know of any history that could provide more perspective from the past on this subject, please share it with us and tell us what's your perspective. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you. The opinions and statements of our guests are their own. We neither agree nor disagree with them. We're only interested in the perspective they provide through history. At History Behind News, we're honored that our guests share their expertise with us, most of which are based on years of scholarship and research. And we provide links to their projects and publications for your benefit, to review them if you wish. Otherwise, we're not affiliated with our guests. We just think they teach us pretty cool history, the history behind our news. Also, unless we explicitly inform you, we're not affiliated with any institutions, including Amazon, for which book links are shared here from time to time for your convenience. Finally, as a reminder, we don't do news here at History Behind News, And of course, share your thoughts with me by leaving your comments on Twitter or sending an email to adele at historybehindnews.com. I love to hear from you. I love to learn from you. Until next time, this is Adele with History Behind News, a history podcast for our news.